Yuma. My name is Jude Barlow and I'm a Ngunnawal woman. My family are Wallabaloa people, a family group within the Ngunnawal nation. Ngunnawal people are the traditional custodians of Canberra and the surrounding region. And my ancestors have lived on this country for thousands of years, from the mountains to the life-giving rivers. I want to welcome you now to the land of my ancestors, on which the National Gallery of Australia stands. And I will welcome you in the language of my ancestors, a language once thought dead, but we Ngunnawal people, we know it was only sleeping, and we have awoken it. Yangu nalamanyin dunimanyin. Nunuwal wari darwa wari. Darwa nuna nurmbanya. Mara biji mulangari dinila. Gulambani. Naragano wali yeri. Yara binyin. Nona yarwi yangu. Yumalundi. Nunuwal wari. Darwa wari. Today we're all gathering together on Nunuwal country, and this is my ancestor's spiritual homeland, and we are keeping the pathways of our ancestors alive by all of us walking together as one. You may leave your footprints here. Welcome to Nunawal country. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which you are listening to this podcast, and I pay them my profound respects and thank them for their many outstanding contributions to the life of this nation. Janimaba, thank you. Artists Artists is a podcast brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. I'm Jennifer Hickey, and over the course of the series, I'll be chatting with artists about works of art from the national collection that inspire, move or intrigue them. Born in 1983 in Indonesia, the artist Albert Jonathan Setiawan is based in Tokyo, Japan. Although he works primarily in ceramic, he also translates his ideas into drawings, performance, and video. The National Gallery acquired Albert's monumental work, Shelters, from 2018-19, which comprises 1,800 terracotta components in five architectural forms, mosque, church, temple, stupa, and ziggurat, arranged in a five-metre grid. Art making, he says, is a way to meditate and contemplate on certain issues. Albert, thank you so much for joining me. It's lovely to be here. The first work you selected from the National Gallery collection is by the Italian painter and printmaker Giorgio Morandi, who was born in 1890 and died in 1964. Natura Morta, or Still Life, was created in 1956. It's a small, dreamy oil painting that depicts a series of everyday objects in muted colours. When did you first come across this artwork? I think I first came across Giorgio Morandi's work in, in an exhibition in Tokyo. I've become quite familiar with his work through, you know, art books and website and magazine, but I've never really experienced it looking at them in person since that exhibition. Morandi has that kind of, uh, you know, repetitive method where he, he decided deliberately to paint the same object, even though they don't come out as, as the same, 
but uh, there's a kind of similarity between and also continuity between one painting to another, which I think somehow I didn't plan it in my own work, but I think it, over the time I realized that it sort of exists also from one work to another. This idea of continuity with one and another. I know that each work has you know separate title, but I really like the idea that if one work can connect to another over a certain period of time, so it creates this you know kind of continuous movement. So I was quite impressed by that idea of uh, familiarity and strangeness at the same time by working with repetitions. It's really this idea of repetition and renewal, isn't it? The idea yes. of looking yeah. at something so that you can constantly keep reinventing it or seeing it afresh. Like in your work, Shelters, which is a really monumental work, you examine these forms and you repeat them and repeat them and repeat them. And so there's this sort of almost hallucinogenic repetition of forms. And so what do you think is the relationship in terms of repetition between your work and Mirandi's? I think you put it beautifully, the repetitions. Over time, and working on the same thing. Uh, the object that I make come from the same mold, for example, come from the same source. But then every tiny little actions that I do with the object alter the shape, makes them different. For example, I would, you know, reproduce one stupa shape, like in the case of shelters. Then whenever I try to carve it, if I translate it to painting, I think whenever Jojo Morandi tried to paint a bottle or something, I think in the same way that like he could paint like pan straight line and they never really become the same straight lines over time. Mm. I think in, in that way probably I can translate, I can connect with his work because it's very organic, it comes from the hand. It occurred to me too that Mirandi's palette, even though of course he's a painter, it's very earthy, it's almost like a kind of ceramic and often he was painting ceramics too and he's got those beautiful muted earth tones and I assume that's something that attracted you as well yes I think that's also I mean in terms of color I think it's quite appealing right I mean when I look at the painting like magazines sometimes don't really do justice to the work like when you finally see the work in person and not only the color but also the textures of the paint the canvas like the, the physical quality of the work really quite appealing to me when I first uh, saw it and of course, this is a painting that was made about 70 years ago. It's small, it's intimate, it's handmade. What do you see as its relevance to the contemporary moment, our hyper-connected, hyper-technical world? I think it's, it's about slowness, probably, a sense of slowness. I think that's what really speaks to me with this type of work. You know, it makes you want to just, just slow down a little bit and enjoy the shape, enjoy the painting, enjoy the color, and just like really pay attention to what's here in front of you visually in comparison to what's going on right now. Like everything appeared to us on screen layered. You know, we can open like several different screens on our computer at the same time. So like there's too many informations, everything moves so fast. So I really quite drawn in a type of work that produces a sense of like slowness. The next artwork you've chosen is by the German artist Wolfgang Leib, who was born in 1950. Milkstone was created in 1980 out of marble and milk. A minimal white rectangle, it's nearly a metre long and weighs 52 kilos. So when did you first come across this work? I first came across Wolfgang Leib's works through, again, through magazine. But I finally get to see the, the, the marble and the milk, they also pour the milk. 
it was quite fascinating that like I saw the work. It's so it's so ordinary. You know, nothing really grandiose about it. Like it's a slabs of stone, a warm color, white with like a, a really thin layer of milk on top of it. It's so simple. It's so ordinary, as if there's nothing going on there. But at the same time, there's a lot going on if you are willing to really just stand still and look and think about the work. You wrote that it reminds you of silence. And what do you mean by that? How does milk and marble remind you of silence? I can understand that it sounds very abstract, but I stumbled upon this book called The World of Silence by Max Picard. It was written in 1948. Silence in Picard's definition is not the absence of sound or the absence of noise or the absence of anything. And he says that it was, it's something where language comes from. He says like, like language or anything that is part of our phenomena comes from silence. So he was trying to explain the silence as something that is really primal, really deep down inside where something that cannot be communicated, something that says in between, that cannot be conveyed through words. So it was really abstract, but at the same time also I can relate to that idea. Does silence for you in this rather sort of philosophical framework, does it have a spiritual dimension? I mean, in many ways what you're describing sounds like a kind of Zen Buddhism. For Picard himself, because he is a Catholic, I think obviously for him there is a lot of uh, spiritual meaning in it. But for me, I... Over time, I've gone through some changes in terms of understanding my own work. I realized that a few years back, around five or six years ago, probably, I was still thinking in my works in terms of expression of spirituality. But now, I began to realize that it's probably not about spirituality at all, partly because I have a problem with the definition of spirit and spirituality itself. Because spirituality seems to look at the world in two opposite aspects, like the, the dualism. It seems to point out the dualism between material and materiality, the spirit and the body. It's always like that. And there's an emphasis that the spirit is always the true essence, uh, the real self. So I have a problem with that because the more I work with ceramic, in which everything is very physical and my body is in full, it's very intense, then it's not about whether there's the spirit, which is the essence, and then the, the material is just the shadow or the reflections of the essence. But it seems to be like they are just two components. They have to be there for things to work out. If you bake something, for example, you have the flour, you have the water. You can't separate the flour from the water once it becomes a bread. So I feel like existence is almost like that. Like It's a combination of several different things that have to be mixed through that understanding, I understand silence a little bit differently from Max Picard. Although I can connect uh, the way he tried to point out silence as in the ability for human to kind of to express something poetically, something they cannot to feel something, to understand something that cannot be uh, explained through words. So in the in case of Wolfgang Lai's work, I think that's that's how I can connect it. Like it's so primal based on material itself, the materiality of the marble and the milk. It's not about concept anymore. It's like it's beyond concept. I think in that case, that, that's why it reminds me of like Max Picard's silence. 
I'm very curious, actually, to hear more about your choice of places of worship in shelters and how that might relate to what you were just discussing about the nature of spirituality and religion. There's two sides, I think, in shelter, two aspects I'm trying to represent, trying to express. One is that I don't really deny spirituality, but at the same time, I'm trying to question it also. So like, is it really spirituality or is it just something else? I think the reason why I, I choose the title Shelters is also because I wanted people to think that it's a space where people can, you know, like a shelter, they can find refuge. But at the same time, I, I arrange it in a way that it's actually trying to trap people. Like once you, once you are in, it's kind of almost impossible to go out. You're like trapped in the maze. So there's these two aspects that I'm trying to express, I think, through that work. I want to know why people have faith and how... How can you reconcile faith and reason, for example? How do you find balance between faith and reason? And also in the context of religious practice in Indonesia, for example, there's all this diversity in different uh, religious traditions. Trying to find the balance between it. So how do you interpret the contemporary relevance of Milkstone, you know, which was created, as I mentioned, in 1980? How can it nourish us? How can it fascinate us? What's its function now, do you think? I think this primal quality, this materiality of uh, the quality of matter and substance is, I think, always relevant. I mean, we live in an era where everything is like digitalized, uh, you know, there's AI and stuff like physical matter, physical substance seems to matter probably for some people, but it actually, it, it actually becomes more relevant, I think, right now. You know, everything is just fabricated and easily made, you know. So what I find really fascinating, which I think we'd always speak to any people, I think, who are willing to look deeper in the case of uh, Wolfgang Leibsburg, is I think it's materiality. The third artwork that you've chosen is by the Austrian-British potter Lucy Ree, to whom touch and material and the handmade was also extremely important. She was born in 1902 in Vienna, and she died in London in 1995. And her work Vase was created around 1979. And it's quite small. It's only about 30 centimetres tall. It's a wheel-thrown vase, and it has a very simple, almost black glaze and a wide trumpet lip. Tell us about Lucy Rian, how you first came across her work. Yeah, uh, I first came across... Lucy Rees work when I was uh, a student. So yeah, it was quite inspiring to see her work at the time. I was really fascinated by how delicate it was. Even just looking at it to pictures has this like really uh, visceral quality. It's almost like you can feel traces of her hands like on the surface of the pot. Like, I think even more so as I learned how to make ceramics myself, I began to understand how difficult it was to do it in terms of technicalities, how to achieve those type of lines, for example, or shapes or the, the, the thickness and the thinness of the body of the ceramic. I began to appreciate even more the works and it began to inspire me even more. In terms of the contemporary relevance of this work, it was made more than 40 years ago, but what do you see as its relevance to the here and now? I think in relation to materiality, whenever I'm in the studio working, somehow clay or ceramic, it reminds me of the idea of a, a body, like a, 
like an embodiment of something. So when it comes to lucidity, that's what I feel. It's like the constant concentrations of energy or like or whatever her experience, and then he and she directed all those things into making into this object, and so that object somehow becomes an extension of her body. And when it comes to relevance to our present situations, I think a lot of our experience has been. We are actually there's a lot of disembodied experience. I think these days, you know, it's it's almost as if with the development of technology, it feels like the body is becoming less and less important. Our corporeal body, our physical body, the fact that we exist in the world through this body, the fact that we have senses and we have any uh, like all kind of perceptions that we have over the world. We get it through our body. It is really impossible to not have a body. If I take the questions a little bit further to its extreme, like can I have a body or not? Then, if we have all the technology, if we're able to say transfer our brain into sort of you know technology that can store our memory and can replicate how the minds work into AI or something like that, is it really possible to live in a world in which? We don't exist as a bodily, you know, as a corporate body. So whenever I deal with some work like this of Lucy and work on lives, it always reminds me of that quality. I think in that way, it's still relevant. It will still be relevant even, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. The final artwork you've chosen, which is untitled number four, created in 1977 from gesso, ink wash, and graphite on canvas by the American artist Agnes Martin, who was born in Macklin, Canada in 1912 and died in Taos in New Mexico in 2004. And in a way, she was exploring many of the ideas that you've been talking about with these other artists. Her language was quite minimal, but it's very handmade. She was deeply interested in the role of the body and the spirit and the relationship between the two. It's a square work. It's just shy of two meters. And it's an off-white color inscribed with a very delicately drawn grid. When did you first come across the work of Agnes Martin? I've never seen this work in person, although I've seen the other work. What I always like about Agnes Martin's painting is that this really radical way of building, you know, physical compositions, nothing really speaks louder than anything else. Everything is just unified. You know, all lines are made the same, the same distance or the same thickness. But then, even though it's mechanical, there is the human quality in it. You know, there's the fact that it, it's not the same line. The more it goes to in this really symmetrical, arranged, mechanical, geometric form, the more you feel that it's a very human somehow. I don't know why it's a weird effect. Like sometimes the asymmetrical structure seems a bit too superficial sometimes for me. So I, I tend to gravitate towards something that is really highly symmetrical, which is I think that is actually even more human to me. It, it goes beyond the superficial. It goes beyond what, what is pleasing to the eye, for example. I think it's it can be quite it can be quite hard, right? When you look at something that's really symmetrically arranged. Some people may feel uncomfortable. So I, guess it, I think it's the same way also when people look at my work. And because I try to do that also in my work, try to arrange them in a symmetrical way. Comment, for example, like, do you have OCD? <laughs> Are you like, do you have things like that? It's as if like what I do is actually not as natural or 
you know, as a human being can be, you know, like not a natural act to do that. It is something that is forced because it's mechanical. But I feel it's the opposite, actually. I think we are, we need structures. We have structures. And the way I do it is just, I'm just trying to express structure in, in visual. Uh, so that's what I see in the thing. It's really radical in a way that there's no hierarchy at all. No top, no bottom, no left, no right. You can almost flip it. And it's so fascinating. I really like it. It's so enigmatic also because it's very simple. You know, nothing much going on in the painting. It's just lines. But then at the same time, you know, it's not about the lines itself. It's about how she draws the lines. It's about how she paints the painting. It's about how the painting came to be. I mean, this really relates back to what you were saying about the importance of the body being involved in a work of art in a way that ostensibly, if you look at it from a distance, her work often looks quite mechanical, as you say. But when you get close, they're, you know, exquisitely beautiful lines, often wobbly lines, very hand-drawn lines. And so there is the sense of the individual within technology and would you say that that is one of the many reasons that her work is still relevant today i think so what i see in actress martin's work is about existence it's about the particular it's about the way the line is drawn and it's located in the body like it is impossible to get that line without imagining the artist herself drawing it doing it painting or like moving her hands in a certain way positioning her body in a certain way that to me is quite fascinating. So it doesn't remind me right away of essence, but it reminds me of the body. If we think about the works you've chosen from Giorgio Morandi, from Wolfgang Leib, from Lucy Ree, and Agnes Martin, artists from different countries, different generations, with very different approaches. What do you think, very simply, links the work of all of these four artists? Materiality. I think that, that that's one, one thing that sort of connects all of these ideas. I guess it's a term that I've been thinking about also uh, quite a lot of times because I just, I just love substance. I love working with matter. Because it something's really intriguing to me when I think about how how the body works, or how our senses work, for example, how we can see the world. Like it always makes me feel anxious whenever I think about how I cannot see what is inside of my body. Like I have an eye, ear that can hear all kinds of sound outside and see all kinds of things outside. But it is so annoying that I can't see myself inside. Most of the time we pay attention to the outside world. I realized that when working with matter and we're dealing with materialities of any substance, clay or you know, painting, canvas, wood or whatever it is, metal, there's always this quality in the matter itself that sort of wanted to draw us inside of it. Not physically or not scientifically, but poetically or metaphorically or imaginatively probably through our imagination. We want to be inside. So I think it speaks to the conditions that our existence is really finite, it's really limited, and our senses are so limited also. And the way that we can reach into this really, you know, this unreachable area in which our senses cannot reach is by working on something, by making something. So by doing that, dealing with matter, the, the matter itself creates this sort of reflective quality that it reflects our conditions in a way. 
it has it becomes like a mirror to me. Thank you so much, Albert, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed talking with you. My pleasure. I'm Jennifer Higgy, and this has been Artists, Artists, brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. Information about the works of art discussed in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app or listen at nga.gov.au. This is a people-powered podcast made possible through donations to the National Gallery. Your support helps us elevate art, artists and the National Collection. Make a donation today.